coming up on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. What happened was the mom really wanted her daughter to drink ayahuasca. Her daughter was not medically stable. And so mom went on her behalf, you know, to learn how better to serve her daughter, but also in a kind of like surrogate healing capacity, which was amazing. And mom had a really, really powerful experience. She came home. She was different. It led to a domino effect in the family, including with her daughter's illness. The following year, her daughter was well enough to attend the retreat. And she had an incredibly powerful experience. And about six months, eight months after that, they attended ceremonies together to continue on this healing path. And now, daughter is a kick-ass medical student doing super well. And she occasionally teaches her peers about the potential value of psychedelics in healthcare. Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, a weekly conversation series with leaders in psychedelic culture. Designed for therapists, healers, retreat leaders, and passionate enthusiasts. Presented by Maya and hosted by me, Eamon Armstrong. Welcome back to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. This is Eamon Armstrong. In the United States, 20 million women and 10 million men suffer from a clinically significant eating disorder at some time in their life. And as psychedelics are becoming more mainstream, there is an increased interest in using new tools to overcome these disorders. Today, with guest Adele LaFrance, we discuss the promising future that ayahuasca, MDMA, ketamine, and psilocybin can have on a person who is struggling to heal from disordered eating. We begin our conversation by discussing the challenges of healing eating disorders and how psychedelics can help. Adele then shares her work with emotion-focused family therapy, EFFT, and resources that are specific to clinicians. She speaks about ayahuasca as a healing modality with the unique concerns of the ayahuasca preparation diet and the importance of integration. We close with discussing MDMA, psilocybin, and ketamine as treatment options and the importance of love in healthcare. Dr. Adele LaFrance is a clinical psychologist, research scientist, author, and developer of emotion-focused family therapy. She is a leader in the research and practice of psychedelic medicine with a focus on ayahuasca, MDMA, psilocybin, and ketamine. Currently, Adele is the clinical investigator and strategy lead for the MAPS-sponsored study of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. And now, here is Dr. Adele LaFrance. Do you have any kind of rituals or routines that you like to do before a podcast or an appearance? Do you have any way of centering yourself? Or No, I've done it before. I kind of jumped on with this today as an exception, but I'm I'm good. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm always interested in sort of how people get centered. And I find that asking about how people get centered somehow gets me centered. Oh, well, sure then I'll tell is. you. I think about clients who I haven't been able to help. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Like right yeah. before entering into like a space like this, is that kind of like a touching into purpose for you? Yeah, it's touching into purpose. And it's also making it so that I remain humble when I speak, you know, so that I'm not, so when I'm, when I'm imagining who's listening, I'm imagining the people I've helped, but the people who I were, was not able to help. So that I'm honoring them both. That's really powerful. What a powerful way of being in balance, especially when we're talking about psychedelics and there's so much optimism, but they're also not for everyone. And we're also yeah. in many ways at the starting place of research. And also that for me, that's also a way of maintaining integrity. Yeah. I love that. Well, in honor of integrity and humility and also optimism and hope, Adele, welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. It is a real honor to have you on the show today. Um, uh, a member of the Maya team who has herself worked in recovering from her own eating disorder and works mm -hmm. with women who are working with eating disorders, is a huge fan of, of your work, Isa Almi, yeah. who, who works with us. So she was really thrilled that I was interviewing you today. So I just want to just call her into the space as well, honor her and her work. And Well, thank um, you. That's yeah. really sweet. I'm happy to be here. So 
what I'd love to do just to start, because our audience is quite varied in their experience, we're going to be talking today specifically about eating disorders and a lot of the optimism that we're experiencing right now with some of the psychedelic therapy approaches. But I think a, a good starting place just to kind of lay the foundation is I understand that eating disorders are a particularly intractable way of compensating for pain. When there's a suffering, and this is a particular path of compensation for that suffering, a, a path of kind of mitigating that suffering, it's a very difficult, a uniquely difficult, it seems, compensation pattern to let go of. And maybe a way of bringing in that kind of deeper empathy, maybe we can talk a little bit about why this particular pattern of compensation is so difficult to heal from and release. Yeah, I guess the first thing I would say, though, is that many people do well. Many people who struggle with uh, disordered eating or an eating disorder uh, recover. Some recover on their own. Some recover as a result of receiving treatment of different kinds. But there are absolutely a significant uh, number of people who continue to struggle, who continue to suffer, who continue to have impaired quality of life. And there's many reasons why we think that these disorders are difficult to recover from. And some of those factors are physical. Some of those factors are neurobiological. Some of those factors are currently unknown, <laughs> but it's complex. It's complex. And I think that while we have made great strides in the research community in terms of better understanding the development and the maintenance of eating disorders, there are still so many unknowns and so many unanswered questions that I'm actually hoping psychedelics will help to clarify. This is such a exciting moment for all sorts of different mental health challenges, you know, because one thing that I'm finding in my love of psychedelic healing and speaking to so many people who are doing research such as yourself is that a lot of these mental health challenges, a lot of these compulsive behaviors, a lot of these ways that we get stuck seem to be similar in that they all seem to be these kind of deep compensations for pain and trauma. And, mm -hmm. and in some cases, Dr. Rachel Yehuda talks about this, about mm -hmm. their wise compensations for suffering in many mm -hmm. ways. Like the body is choosing if you're talking about perhaps like a childhood dissociation or something, the body is choosing a way of dealing with overwhelming trauma and with pain and suffering. So mm -hmm. the fact that psychedelics are giving us a window into all of these different difficulties at once is, is really encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're going to learn a lot about the brain, about brain functioning, about mental health, about mental wellness as a result of these studies, in particular when we move away from looking at outcome studies to then looking at process studies, including brain research. You didn't personally have a history with psychedelics coming to this work. Yeah, some people had the kind of college experimentation phase, but that wasn't really how you got into this idea of psychedelics for healing. How, how did psychedelics come into the landscape of your work? Yeah, uh, I was psychedelic naive. I had never tried any single psychedelic uh, because I was afraid of them, honestly. I knew uh, in high school, I was not an athlete. I was not artistic. I was not musical, but I did well academically. And so I wanted to protect my brain. And so that meant I did not use any sort of you know psychedelic substances and fast forward, I was uh, working as a university professor in Canada while also working as an eating disorder clinician in a treatment program. And I was developing a treatment model for eating disorders in response to a collective feeling of helplessness, you know, in, in our attempts to support those who needed it most. And I was following the work of Gabor Mate as I was working on this treatment model. And he happened to be presenting in my hometown, which was really odd because I lived in Northern Ontario and small town. And so I went to the talk, of course, I'd read every one of his books. You know, I think I'd watched all of his YouTube videos at that point. It was 2014. And I can't remember what the talk was about, if it was about uh, stress and illness or about mm, 
uh, child development. But during the Q&A portion of the talk, someone asked him to comment on his work with ayahuasca. And I remember it so vividly because I had never heard that word before. And yet I knew all of his work. And Gabor's response was also very interesting because he was like, well, I'm not here to talk about that. You know, Gabor is always up to talk about anything. And then he said, you know, but if you want to know more, watch the nature of things. There's going to be a documentary featuring my work entitled The Jungle Prescription, and it's airing this Tuesday. So I went home, I set the DVR and watched the documentary about this psychedelic Amazonian tea that I'd never heard of. But what I saw was that there were people who were experiencing incredible suffering in part because of really serious substance use, homelessness, racism, and they were having these like really beautiful healing experiences that were so profound that were so touching that I opened up my laptop and I started to write him an email, you know, and I'm like, you don't know me, but I'm a faculty member, psychologist. I work with eating disorders. We are desperate to find ways to help more people. Would you let me know more about it? Anyways, he did finally respond and I'm so grateful to him for that. And then I ended up traveling to the jungle to have my own experience in a group setting as a first step in that group, at least one third of the individuals coincidentally had a history of disordered eating or eating disorders. And again, I was experiencing uh, healing in others and in myself that was really just so powerful that I couldn't ignore it. And so I went back home and I decided that I was going to put together a research study because I thought if there are a third of the people at this retreat who had a history of disordered eating or eating disorders, there are many more. I want to talk to them. And so with colleagues, we conducted a qualitative study where we interviewed 21 people who had a history of an eating disorder and who used ayahuasca ceremonially. And I, one of my colleagues came to me when he heard that I was going to be doing the study and he's like, are you sure you want to do this? You know, it might be really problematic for your career. And I remember feeling like scared because I was working on the development of this treatment model. I really wanted to be taken seriously, but gosh, what I experienced and what I witnessed was just so big that, you know, we proceeded with caution. And I mean, I did have also some professional challenges as a result for sure. But for the most part, it was really, really positive. And now here we are. There's so much going on in the context of psychedelics and eating disorders. And I'm just so thrilled to have been a part of it and to continue to have this opportunity to be a part of it. With ayahuasca work, there's sometimes some thematic purpose stuff that happens in those visions where part of the meaning that you experience is understanding kind of ways that you can give your gifts to the world. I'm curious, when you yourself did ayahuasca, did you have an experience in relation to the plant that had, that kind of was any sort of guidance that this would be a course of your work? Was there like a personal kind of mission thing that Mm -hmm. came through in, in your own work with psychedelics? Not at that time, not my first experience, but then I had a subsequent experience not that long ago when I went back to the jungle and then I was given a very clear sense of a piece of work that could be good for me to do in this kind of next phase of my career. Yeah, I, I think that that's something that a lot of people listening to this program can really identify with is that their own relationship to psychedelic healing has shown where they need to heal and continue healing, but also how they can give to others and serve. And you strike mm-hmm. me as an extremely purpose-driven person. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I know from from listening to uh, you on other podcasts that actually it, it was by chance, in a sense, that you started working with eating disorders and disorderly mm-hmm. eating to begin with. So it, this wasn't necessarily where you were like, when I grow up, I want to f- solve this problem or this is my own problem, so I want to go solve it. But it was almost like, it's almost chance that put you in this particular yeah. field of which you're now a leader. 
Yeah, it's bizarre, honestly. I mean, I didn't even want to do the rotation in eating disorders. I wanted to do the rotation in health psychology when I was first introduced to this work during my my end of year PhD uh, internship in a hospital setting. I and but I couldn't say that to the clinical director. I had to just take what I was given. So that was really interesting. But within days of being in the treatment program in that setting. Gosh, it was just so, it was just so inspiring actually to see the commitment that the patients had, the commitment that the staff had and that the field has to figure out new and better ways to reach more people. And so I was committed to working with eating disorders. Now, of course, I've worked in other areas and I work more broadly in, in general mental health as well. And the treatment model I ended up developing was first for eating disorders, but now it's expanded across uh, diagnoses, across mental health issues, clinical conditions. But eating disorders will always have a very special place in my heart. But you know, it's funny though, because I think about like, oh, back then it was so random. But now when I learn more about my family and when I learn more about what was going on around me as a child, as a teen, people I really cared about, those types of struggles were all around, you know? So even though I didn't have a personal history myself, I certainly have had struggles with body image. There were these little signs, you know, pointing towards, you know, this field of study, this field of practice. So I don't think that story is quite complete yet in terms of the big why I ended up in eating disorders. So I'm still curious about it. Well, you are you are very involved in the study of eating disorders, and particularly <laughs> the, the the with the confluence of psychedelics. And you I mean you've been involved in a number of studies with a number of molecules, and I'm excited to talk about all of that today. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But first, you've been re- referencing a model of care. Um, right. And I, I assume that we're talking here about the emotion-focused family therapy that you developed. So I'd love to talk about that. For our audience of clinicians, I think that it'd be good to spend a little bit of extra time on module five. But let's maybe, if you can just give us a little bit of an overview of this kind of five-stage model, and then we can talk a little bit more about how that applies to psychedelic work as well. Okay, so the premise of VFFT is to recruit actively support and equip caregivers with uh, tools, techniques, so that they can support their loved one who's struggling with an eating disorder, anxiety, depression, PTSD, OCD, et cetera, any significant mental health issue affecting their lives. And it's quite a departure from conventional methods where typically the person who's suffering is the person who's receiving treatment and maybe their family and friends go to a support group but otherwise they are the main uh, recipient of care. But what the neuroscience shows is that if we can support their family members, their loved ones, their partners with specific skills, both behavioral and emotion focused skills, that their family members will actually have more of an impact than we clinicians will. When we look at uh, the brain's responsivity to strangers versus to loved ones, I mean, it's incredibly different. And so I was toying with this idea because in the field of eating disorders, it's widely recognized and not at all controversial that family members should be involved. In fact, in the UK, there's legislation to protect caregivers from being excluded from treatment, given the fact that eating disorders and other chronic health and mental health conditions affect every member of the system. And so I was inspired by the eating disorder community. They're way ahead of the game in this regard. And then, you know, started working on the development of the model more broadly. And I mean, it was really, really powerful. And so no matter their age, the person struggling would bring in a family member. We would work with them to teach them behavioral strategies for the home setting, to teach them emotion-focused strategies to respond to their loved one's stress or distress. And if the caregiver got stuck, you know, if they were like really scared of doing or saying the wrong thing, 
or uh, they were, you know, worried that the impact of their efforts might lead their loved one to become distant from them or even suicidal, then we would work with that caregiver to move through those fears and try to find alternate solutions. And sometimes we work with parents and caregivers and we never actually meet their child, even if they're an adult, because we equip the caregivers with the skills that we believe can be helpful. And then they use them maybe with less frequency than we would, maybe not as sophisticated, but it doesn't matter because the love between them, the interpersonal neurobiology is on our side. So that's the essence of EFFT. Now the fifth module, so I've talked about a few of the modules, the behavior coaching, emotion coaching. We also have a module around therapeutic apologies to strengthen or repair stressed or estranged relationships working through caregiver blocks. The fifth module is working through clinician blocks. So when clinicians get triggered or have potential blind spots, um, there's a whole module on how to work through that, especially if the clinician is losing hope in the family's capacity to move forward in recovery or towards health and wellness. How can uh, caregivers and clinicians access EFFT? Is this something that they would go to a specialist who's trained in this? Is there information online? I'm imagining right now someone might be listening to this, whether they are a caregiver or a clinician, and be like, okay, so what are the tools? Where do I get those? Like, That's right. I'm hungry for these tools. Where can people go to, mm-hmm. to go deep on, on this work? Uh, well, so I, I wrote a book for the American Psychological Association on the model. It's a clinician's manual. It's called Emotion Focused Family Therapy, along with two co-authors, Katherine Henderson and Sherry Maiman. And I also filmed a demonstration of one of the core uh, techniques, again, for the American Psychological Association. So that video can be purchased along with the book uh, on their website. But some friends and I have recorded hours upon hours upon hours of resources for both caregivers and clinicians that are available for free 24-7 at the website uh, www.mentalhealthfoundations.ca. And so I would point people there. Um, there's an emotionfocusedfamilytherapy.org website. I have a website with, uh, with information. And then for clinicians, there's also an institute where you can find a directory of certified EFFTers and information on upcoming trainings. Great. Yeah. And we'll have all of that in the show notes. So if you've just listened to that and didn't write it down, mm-hmm. you just go to the show notes where all the links always live. So yeah, I, I really love this idea of supporting clinician blocks. And you're, you're also talking about supporting caregiver blocks because I think that something that happens with a lot of trying to support others is an experience of kind of fear and shame in terms of doing it the wrong way. What if I say the wrong thing? These these mm-hmm. relationships can feel very tenuous when someone is is in a very difficult place. And you mentioned, you know, estrangement or worse, suicidality as a result of someone yeah. potentially making the wrong move. You know, just that fear itself seems like such a huge barrier to the love that you've described as being what's so imperative in the healing. Do you have just sort of like off the cuff any like tools for meeting that fear, particularly for a clinician who may be, who may just feel frozen? Do you have any techniques that you recommend specifically? I mean, yeah, there's like 10 of them, you know, that are listed in within the model, but I'll just, one that's really, really simple, but often overlooked is the power of deep validation. When we have a person who's struggling with an eating disorder and we engage their parent and their parent is acting in a way that is potentially obstructive for treatment, like maybe buying diet foods or um, supporting them to uh, restrict their food intake. As clinicians, we often lean into providing psychoeducation and citing research about why that may not be helpful. You know, let me tell you why that might not be helpful. But instead of doing that, what can be far more facilitative and supportive is to validate why they're doing that. I don't blame you for turning a blind eye when your daughter doesn't finish her meal. I don't blame you for buying her diet foods because I imagine there's a part of you that is terrified that if you don't, 
she won't eat anything. And so at least if you buy her the diet foods, she's getting some nutrition. It makes sense to me that you would do that, you know, because you're a loving mother or a loving parent or a loving partner, and you don't want something worse to happen. In fact, one mom helped me to coin the phrase, I'd rather have a sick kid than a dead one. And when you can really, really feel into what that must be like, then you're going to tend to that person in a completely different way. The objective is still to help them to pivot away from that rock in a hard place, you know, so that they can see that there are potentially new solutions. But I really can't underemphasize the power of deep heart-centered validation and really taking the time to kind of imagine what it must be like to have a child of any age who is refusing to engage in one of the most life-giving needs you know, that humans have. So that's the first piece that I would say that we don't need extensive training for any fancy tools or techniques to do. If you want the other tools, techniques, there's many of them attend one of our trainings, but that's one that I think is we all can do and we can do well, you know, when we give ourselves that time and that space. And then the other piece is most often parents and caregivers, when they engage in problematic practices, like the ones I've mentioned, you know, there's that fear, but the fear is really about if they set a limit or if they set an expectation that their loved one will have a strong emotion that they don't know how to support, you know, in their loved one. And that they're worried that that strong emotion will then lead to something worse happening. And so what we also do is teach them really simple scripts that are very powerful to respond to strong emotion. So for example, if a parent, like let's say it's a teenager, let's say that a parent has a teenager with an eating disorder and they're engaging them, you know, with meal support, with symptom interruption, and the teenager really feels so hopeless about recovery, about life and wants to die. We would coach the caregiver to validate and support their child's experience like this. And it would sound something like this. I can understand why you would feel completely hopeless about recovery, about life, because you have been working at this for so long. And because you probably do not see even a glimmer of light at the end of that freaking tunnel. And because it might feel like nobody gets just how bad it is. When someone's hopeless and suicidal in front of us, you know, or, or has suicidal thoughts in front of us, we usually panic. We want to show them that there's hope, right? There's something to live for. But actually that can deepen the hopelessness because it can deepen the feeling of being misunderstood and therefore feeling alone. And so we coach the family to respond with these validating statements, followed by support, right? Instilling hope, ensuring safety, et cetera. But that first step is so important. And so many families have been so grateful to have been given words to approach some of these really challenging situations that then releases them, right? Because then they're like, okay, well, I don't need to not say these hard things because I'm afraid of these big emotions because now I know what to do if these big emotions come and we can ride the wave together. So it's kind of a game changer in that way. Wow, that's really powerful. Speaking of psychedelics in this context, are you aware of any research around psychedelic healing for caregivers to support mm-hmm. caregivers in this? I know that we're, we'll be talking about a number of different studies where we're working with folks with eating disorders, but studies that are specifically focused on the caregivers? Not yet, but that is my plan. <laughs> so I have like three different models of family-based psychedelic medicine inspired by, you know, some of the things that I've witnessed. And I really had this wonderful interview. I would have opportunity to interview the, this dyad, a mother daughter dyad. And what happened was the mom really wanted her daughter to drink ayahuasca. Her daughter was not medically stable. And so mom went on her behalf you know, to learn how better to serve her daughter, but also in a kind of like surrogate healing capacity, 
which was amazing. And mom had a really, really powerful experience. She came home. She was different. It led to a domino effect in the family, including with her daughter's illness. The following year, her daughter was well enough to attend the retreat. And she had an incredibly powerful experience. And about six months, eight months after that, they attended ceremonies together to continue on this healing path. And now daughter is a kick-ass medical student doing super well. And she occasionally teaches her peers about the potential value of psychedelics in healthcare. You know, so this idea of surrogate healing is one that I'm very interested in when the person who's struggling is medically unstable or they have to take medications that are contraindicated, you know, with certain compounds, or their fear is just so big that they're not able, you know, to get there. And so I think there's, I mean, I've had the opportunity to talk to now a number of people, and I really, really do believe that this could be a very powerful option for some. Wow. That's so cool. You know, that makes me think of like the ancestral healing that happens with ayahuasca work where, you know, you you do your healing and then you have a conversation with a parent and and you can actually see tangibly that kind of ripple effect. I mean, it's it's been hugely potent in my life. And I think there's also the case of kind of ancestral racial healing as well is, is a case that comes up a lot in ayahuasca too. Yes. Where it's just, yes. This healing can just move in ripples out through communities. So I love that you're focusing on these warrior care caregivers and, mm-hmm. and their work, which is super important. So that's that's really cool that you're doing that. And let's let's shift now to talk about these specific molecules and their efficacy. Because you're in a unique position in that to a very to varying degrees, you are involved in research with four different molecules. And so you know, it's it's a bit of a basic question to ask which one is best, and I know that that's mm-hmm. not the right question, so I won't ask it. But we'll talk a bit about which one and how, in different cases, different molecules are are helpful. So your first research was with ayahuasca, so it seems like that's a great place to start. And with ayahuasca, ayahuasca has some of the published research because some of the stuff with like psilocybin, for example, is still ongoing. But you have some published research with ayahuasca. What have you found in terms of ayahuasca as a healing modality specifically for people who are suffering from eating disorders? And while I found that uh, outcomes vary, depending on the person, that there doesn't seem to be a clear-cut formula to predict who will you know, respond the best, definitely more questions than there are answers. And one of the kind of more compelling results for me was the realization that in order to really support people very well who struggle with eating disorders and who want to use this work, we have to carefully consider um, the unique preparation practices and the unique integration needs. And when you say when you say preparation practices, are you referring to also like the cleansing diet before? Because that seems to be like a unique factor for this population. Absolutely. I'm talking about the physical preparation and talking about the psychological preparation. Um, but yes, as you mentioned, the physical preparation involves a restrictive diet in terms of the types of foods you can eat that off that can mimic an eating disordered diet. And so one of the things that I'm looking into right now and getting guidance from ceremonial leaders is like, okay, which of these restrictions are, do we feel are absolutely necessary for physical safety and for just shamanic reasons? And then are there some of those restrictions that we can loosen for these people so that we don't uh, potentially create more problems for them to have to deal with. Yeah, that that was the one thing that kind of stuck out for me is that that would be potentially very triggering for people and and very limiting. And in my experience with the cleanses before is that it's the SSRI issue, the the serotonin sickness stuff that is the most impactful in terms of that cleanse. So I think there are ways to moderate that diet. And I've heard anecdotally of shamans eating cheeseburgers in the jungle. It may not be an absolute requirement. So I think, yeah, it's, it's really, mm-hmm. it's an, an important thing to check. And then you were also mentioning integration. I mean, integration is an important piece of all kind of psychedelic healing. Is there an aspect of integration that might be unique to this population that you've explored? 
Yeah, I do feel like for people with have who have are healing from an eating disorder, there needs to be a collaboration with eating disorder specialized services, you know, in many cases. Uh, so there in the field of mental health, there's kind of this unwritten rule that if you don't have specialized treatment in eating disorders, you don't treat eating disorders. And so very few people who do not have specialized treatment in eating disorders will actually take on these um, cases, you know, these people. Uh, because there's so much that needs to be known in order to serve them well. And so uh, likewise, you know, with going to the jungle and having a really big experience, my bias is that I do feel like there needs to be people on board who know eating disorders and who know eating disorders well. So that makes a lot of sense. For the people listening who are psychedelic practitioners, possibly even psychedelic practitioners who are operating in the gray market, and someone is reaching out to them because they are desperate, they need support, but these individuals are not necessarily trained in working with this population, but they are trained in working with these medicines. I'm not sure how much you could advise this group of people. I mean, it may even be a case where you're not even in a position where you can give advice to this group of people, but I'm curious, would... Is this blanket suggestion be like redirect them to someone else or bring on a collaborator mm-hmm. or or are there any trainings that that could bring someone up to speed to enough of a degree that they could be working with this population? What kind of suggestions would you offer there if, if you're able to do so? Yeah, so I guess what I feel comfortable saying is if you don't have eating disorders training and experience working with eating disorders clinically, it's probably not a good idea to work with people who have eating disorders, period. And, you know, people can get training, people can get experience, but there are, there are different aspects of treatment that are not always obvious, but that can be necessary. And like people die from eating disorders more often than they die from any other mental health condition. I think it's in terms of mortality rate, it's second only to opioid related death. So it's serious. It's serious. And although the research that I conducted showed that most everyone but one person had positive effects and some had really positive effects, including full remissions, sometimes people have major relapses, you know, or made, they, they open up something so big and so painful that um, they end up going really deep into symptoms, you know, because they feel under-resourced otherwise. And we need to be able to know what to do, you know, to support them, to bridge that period of time until they find themselves again, until they kind of gather themselves again. And you mentioned that there are trainings that people can do. Are you aware of, or will you in fact be offering any trainings that specifically work with eating disorders and psychedelic healing? I mean, that's the goal, but I have to be honest. I don't feel like I know enough yet to put together a curriculum that I would feel confident and comfortable, you know, um, delivering. And that's even after, like you said, like I've been involved in like I've been involved in eating disorder research for over a decade, clinical practice for over a decade. I've worked with four different compounds and it's easy for me to say, we don't know enough quite yet to be able to train people in a way that I feel comfortable. Let's say someone is listening and they're like, I want the best support that I can possibly get. I love this beautiful story about the mother who went to do ayahuasca herself. Um, I know that some people are doing their own self-directed healing. But just for someone who's listening to this podcast right now, who's like, okay, psychedelics are solving all of the problems. They've got to be solving this problem. Where do I take my kid? Where do I take my partner? Where do I take someone who I want to serve as a clinician, but I don't feel skilled enough to support them? Mm -hmm. What's the suggestion there? It's gonna. It's not gonna be a very satisfying response, you know. Uh, we're just not there yet. So, on the other hand, people have been healing in beautiful ways in the jungle, um, in the context of research studies. As you know, we just published a study where we looked at disordered eating in the PTSD sample from the MDMA studies that Maps was conducting, and and yay, you know, people didn't only receive benefit with regards to their PTSD symptoms. They also receive benefit with with regards to eating disorder symptoms. So I don't want to discount the possibilities of getting some healing. I've talked to so many people 
uh, over these last few years who've reached out to me. You know, I get emails probably every week, like this help, this help, this help. Can you tell me more? Unfortunately, I'm just not in a position to be able to do that right now, both ethically and legally. Um, so if when people say like, I think I want to go to the jungle and I'm like, okay, well, I have some ideas about how we can think about how best to make that happen. You know, so if someone has a restrictive type anorexia nervosa and they want to go to the jungle, I recommend that they bring a family member with them to help them with the meals so that they don't end up losing, you know, a lot of weight while they're there, because that would be highly counterproductive or a dietitian even, and do, you know, have their eating disorder team on board before, during, after, I I think, but not everyone can afford that. And so it's like, sometimes I feel silly even saying that because it's like, gosh, what a treatment plan, you know, it's so challenging for so many people you know, who just don't have those kinds of resources. But I'll tell you what, what I can say with confidence and with conviction is that we're coming for you. We are working so hard behind the scenes in so many different ways to to make this happen for people with eating disorders. Yeah, yeah. And of course I'm limited. I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm a regulated health professional. I'm limited, limited in what I can say. Well, I love what I love this confidence saying that we're coming for you. And you, more than anyone, it seems in this field, are involved in so many different ways that that you're trying to find the answers. So let's talk yes. a little bit about that. You just yes. mentioned this MDMA study. I think it was published like this week, maybe. I feel like two days yeah, ago. It's from the, <laughs> yeah, it's from the um, it's in the Journal of Psychiatric Research. We'll have a link uh, uh-huh. to that in the show notes if people want to check it out. Is this the same study where you were a clinical investigator and strategy lead for Maps, or is no. this is this is taking us? That's a different study, and then this is taking a sample size from the PTSD trials. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Can you walk us through that a little bit? Because that seems really promising. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it happened by accident. Um, we were having a meeting with a potential donor who was interested in potentially funding the bigger study, you know, the one that I'm in the, I'm the strategy lead on. And so we wanted to, to provide some data on, on the potential for the study. And so there's a group of us. It was not just me. In fact, <clears throat> I wasn't the lead on this, on this, uh, Timothy Brewerton was Dr. Timothy Brewerton. And, um, so in combination with our colleagues at maps, we pulled data from the PTSD study and we analyzed it over time in particular, looking at scores on a measure called eat 26 eating attitudes test. There's 26 items. And which had had been included in the questionnaire set for the participants, which was awesome. You know, this was kind of, uh, it was a a pre-specified exploratory addition, you know, to include this measure, this E26. And so what we found was that in people who completed the protocol, there was a significant reduction in in total EAT scores, which measure uh, the potential for disordered eating. In the total group of PTSD versus placebo. So when we compared those who did MDMA assisted therapy versus placebo, there was a significant reduction in their EAT scores. Uh, There were also significant reductions in EAT scores in women in particular who had EAT scores that were either subclinical or clinical in comparison to placebo. And so that's that was a really cool finding and a great way to launch this next phase of work that we're going to do where we've we've developed a protocol to determine the safety, feasibility, and the preliminary outcomes of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for eating disorders, but with a twist. So it's not going to look exactly like the PTSD protocol because, surprise, we're going to recruit a family member. Ah, I knew it. I knew that was coming. <laughs> yeah. That's so I'm really pumped about that. And the study that I'm a part of at Imperial College is doing the same. And it's going, I mean, I can't speak to it. I'm not the lead on that. And the data is ongoing. I'll just tell you that it's very exciting. And and that's the study on psilocybin at Imperial psilocybin. College London. Yeah. Yeah, so. exactly. That's that's three of our our four molecules, and so far 
They're all looking very promising. The fourth one is emotion-focused ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Um, And this one's interesting because... Of, of course, ketamine is the most accessible of the sort of, it's not a classical psychedelic, it has psychedelic properties at certain doses, That's but right. it's the most accessible at the moment because it is prescribed off-label in the U.S. And I imagine that for many people who are not connected to psychedelics, they're looking at ketamine first because you know, and it's, it's the most available. And, yeah, 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 know, for sure. Um, and you can, so, take, you can take it with medi- other medications as well, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so tell me about what your investigations around ketamine assisted psychotherapy in the context of eating disorders have have shown. I mean, it was a really really small research project. You know, we had very few participants. So I spent some time developing the model based on the previous work I've done with emotion focused interventions. And um so we worked with a handful of women who had a history of eating disorders, some very long standing. And we delivered a two week protocol and the two week protocol involved a prep session for themselves and their identified support person. And then they participated in three ketamine sessions, I am, and we offered support to the support person to so that they could uh, play a role during that process as well. And after each ketamine session, within 24 hours, I uh, delivered really intense, experiential, emotion-focused interventions that tend to correspond with difficulties that people with eating disorders have so that we could leverage the um, optimized brain state to create change. And then all that was followed up by a closing session for, for the participant and their support person. The most interesting finding for me uh, in terms of the application for eating disorders, but in terms of ketamine-assisted psychotherapy more broadly, is what happened in the therapy session after the ketamine. So uh, Robin Carhart-Harris and his team developed, I think actually it was developed or co-developed a measure uh, entitled the Emotional Breakthrough Inventory. I mean, they're doing such good work, particularly with measurement de- development. But th- this Emotional Breakthrough Inventory is meant to be administered post-psychedelic experience. And the participant rates the degree to which they moved through something difficult, you know, or had emotional breakthroughs. And there's a selection of items. What I did was I delivered, or I administered the emotional breakthrough inventory after the psychotherapy in reference Mm. to the psychotherapy. And what we found, and I emailed Robin immediately. I'm like, oh my gosh, look at these scores. What do you think? He's like, those are the same scores we got in one of our psilocybin studies. And so what we what that tells me is that 24 hours post-ketamine, really intentional, really experiential, really emotion-focused psychotherapy can be rated as powerful as a clinical dose of psilocybin. And that is awesome. It also means that I don't really think people should be doing ketamine at that level, you know, those doses without psychotherapy because the ketamine helps. Of course, when there's many studies that are, have demonstrated that ketamine on its own helps, you know, infusions, nasal spray, et cetera. But the combination of the ketamine and the psychotherapy, I think that's where there's the most promise. Really important words because this is an ongoing conversation of whether a simple ketamine infusion is as efficacious as ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. And I tend to lean on the side based on the conversations I've had that that it's the, the therapy is really important here. There's there's a theme that seems to be coming up through this whole conversation, which is about community, family connections. <laughs> you know, it seems like so much of this healing is about therapeutic relationships around caregivers, around human connections with people Mm -hmm. and the openness. And I know that there's neurobiological underpinnings to why that's so important, but we are a social species and Mm -hmm. healing is so much about community. And so that kind of ties into, I think, some of your work on the Love Project. And I'd love for you to talk a bit about love because mm. really, if there's one thing that, that gets reported more than anything else in terms of like a peak psychedelic state is the feeling of 
the kind of oneness and lovingness yeah. and connectedness. Yeah. So let's talk about a scientific inquiry into love. <laughs> well, do you earlier when you asked me, did you get a mission? You know, are you given a mission? I'm like, no, 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 not about eating disorders and not even about family. Although a lot of my healing work really helped to propel the development of the model. I did get <laughs> some directives about talking about love and healthcare. Mm. and the importance of doing so. And um, so at first, you know, it was just an idea that was growing. And then an idea became a research idea. And then a research idea became the beginnings of a, of a survey for research and also a potential documentary. So, I mean, it's... It's happening very organically, but I'm really excited about it because you said in the preamble to this section, you hear it all the time. Love is so important, but you actually don't hear it all the time in research. In Mm. fact, that word is rarely used and there's not a single published research study in the last 50 years that includes love in the title when looking at psychedelics. And that is weird. Given. That's so weird. Yeah, that's so weird because that's what that's what the psychedelic experience is. It's right. so strange that that word is so avoided. Maybe it's this you know hyper scientific rational. It mustn't be love thing. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, we we had the same phase with spirituality. You know, people didn't talk about spirituality in research for a long time, and one some of the reasons were because really hard to define, incredibly subjective experience. And then there was the political reasons. Many had been hurt in the name of religion. And so there's a double, and there are many other reasons, but those, and look at, if we look at love, incredibly hard to define, very subjective experience, and many have been hurt in the name of love. Even if we look at healthcare and psychotherapy, many have been abused. Many patients have been abused. And so it's complicated. And so I understand that there has been a pretty serious hesitancy around the exploration of love and psychotherapy. I mean, gosh, there are reports coming out too often already about sexual boundary violations in the context of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, including in a research study, you know? So yeah, the word love, if if that evokes fear in people, not a bad thing because then it'll help us to do this work in a, in a really good way, you know? But when I think about Carl Rogers, the father of humanistic psychology, when he coined the term unconditional positive regard, I mean, he was an incredible, like he was a badass basically for doing that because it was at a time where psychoanalytic psychotherapy was more prominent, cognitive behavioral therapies were evolving and humanistic psychology what i mean he's the original he's the original i think uh, advocate for inner healing intelligence right and he's talking about unconditional positive regard it didn't go over so well at the time but it stood the test of time could you imagine if he would have said what he really wanted to say which i believe is the word love i mean come on no one would have taken him seriously i'm speculating a lot right now <laughs> that's <laughs> fine th- speculate this away is what, This is what I think. I think that he made a choice to use a really fancy, smart sounding term to describe love in a clinical way so that it could be integrated as a recognized force that heals. And when you look at the description of unconditional positive regard, I mean, presence, compassion, understanding, it's like, it's amazing. And so now... I would like to join with my colleagues in the field who share a similar vision to evolve, move from the badass labeling of unconditional positive regard to finally talk about love, the force that heals in psychotherapy for sure, and a force that heals also in healthcare that is very much not only underutilized, but not spoken. Wow. Do, do you have any study titles with the word love in them that you have? <laughs> of course. 
dreamed up yet. What's can can you give us one or two of your favorites of like a study that you would love no. to do? No? no, because they sound like Celine Dion songs because I'm I'm French Canadian and so I'm obsessed okay. with Celine Dion and she was my very first inspiration <laughs> about love. So I I'm gonna have to like no, I honestly you I probably shouldn't be the one titling the research projects, but I can guarantee you this, it will have love in the title. Well, we are eager for your love study. I mean, mm-hmm. we, and, and, and I just, I, I, I so appreciate your, your caution and your kind of ethical position of you're being very careful in terms of setting people's appropriate expectations, being very mindful about the populations you're working with. And then at the same time, there's this super boisterous optimism <laughs> that's barely bridled by, by the mm-hmm. constraints that are, that are necessary in this moment. And so, yeah, I, I just, I'm, I'm glad that we have you on our team in terms of moving forward healthcare in this dramatic fashion yeah. in this time. Well, and I want to just say too that my feeling the need to be careful it's in part because I've made a, many mistakes. And so our responsibility to our clients, to our colleagues when we make mistakes, in my opinion is to, you know, do the healing around the blind spot and then do better. And that's, I, you know, that's, that's where it comes from. So I just don't want people to think that like, I'm on an ethical high horse because you know, if you put me under the microscope, like you put anyone else under the microscope, you'd find that like, there are plenty of things that I should have or could have done differently, you know? And for me, that's what integrity is about. It's about doing the best you can with what you've got. And when things go wrong, taking a long, hard look at yourself to see, you know, how you may have, how I may have influence the development of whatever went down and then to do better. And finally, for me, it's, it also includes to talk about it, to talk about it. And there are limitations to how much we can do that, you know, with research studies and with the legality of psychedelics. But I really hope that we we can get to a place where we as clinicians can um, work through some of the challenges that we've experienced. Because when we make mistakes, I mean, it hurts others, but it hurts us too. And we all need to heal and grow together to do better. Yeah, and and this seems to tie back into this module five, clinician blocks. You know, like the fear of making a mistake shouldn't stop us from making an effort. It shouldn't stop us from trying to mm-hmm. move things forward in a good way, yeah. in a wise way. But that kind of paralyzing fear needs to be worked with in a good way. And I'm and I'm grateful that you have some frameworks for people to use for that precise thing. Yeah, I do. Although if up above, down below, I am worried. I did a, a clinician training this week and a beautiful group of clinicians. And there was still so much fear around admitting to making certain kinds of mistakes. And that's with no fear of what they're doing being legal. So I close every podcast the same way which is I like to give uh, my guests the opportunity to speak directly to the healers and the aspiring healers who are working with these medicines or who desire to work with these medicines, who are just curious about working with these medicines. Many of the people on the show, yourself included, are people who are admired by these, for example, my colleague Isa, big fan of yours, and, and would love to hear what, what words of encouragement or just whatever you might like to say to, to that group, the healers and clinicians who are trying to who are trying to make a difference. I mean, I guess I would just I, I have a few things come to mind. First thing I would say, like, let's celebrate. We get to celebrate that we are clinicians during this time, this time of revival of this beautiful, beautiful work, and to hold on tight, <laughs> but not too tight, um, because there's some twists and turns ahead and no doubt frustrations, but that I I think it's really going to be worth it. The other thing I would want to share is something that I learned during a psychedelic experience of my own around how to prepare people for psychedelic experiences. And what I was told or what I learned, what arose was that one of the best ways or one of the important ways to help people prepare for a psychedelic experience with healing intent 
is to let them know that there's actually no adequate way to prepare for what's to come potentially. And many people have their lives turned upside down as a result of healing. And healing also can really affect systems, including romantic relationships, family relationships. And so the last thing I would say is that there's a practice in research, but also in other circles, where after a psychedelic experience, a participant or person is encouraged to keep their experience close, not to talk about it with others, just in case, you know, they don't get it. But if that person is in a romantic relationship or their parent knows that they've done this and they come home and they don't say anything, it can actually replicate a process of, of pretty significant attachment anxiety. And so for clinicians who remember intro psych, there's a very famous study and it's called the still face experiment. And in the still face experiment, there's a baby and a mom and they're engaging, they're interacting. And then the mom is instructed to look away. And then when she comes, when she turns her head back to face her baby, it's, she has a completely still face and her baby freaks out. At first, the baby tries to engage the mom like, hey, you know, are you there? Hi, look at me, ha, ha, ha. But then she starts to be really frustrated and incredibly scared, and she loses her posture. The baby loses her posture, okay? And so now imagine this. My partner just had a really profound psychedelic experience, and they come home and they said, I've been instructed not to talk to you about it. (laughs) yeah yeah with the still face too it's (laughs) right you know and so i think i get why they say it and i i understand it in a really deep way an experiential way and also i think that there's a middle ground where we could help reduce the likelihood of that kind of reaction and what can come subsequently by helping the person share either a little bit or at least the reason why, you know, with some reassurance so that there's still that feeling of, of maintaining that connection. And then the other piece is that sometimes therapists who support individual psychedelics, and I'm talking about the research studies, the, the participant have such huge hugely healing experiences fundamentally changes them. And then they go back to their relationship and now they're trying to like navigate this. And like, so I use the example of like, there's more sort of anger, for example, you know, it's one of the healing outcomes is like standing up for oneself. And if in that relationship, there's was an unconscious contract that we don't do anger, that's really going to shake things up. And their partner will need support to navigate this new normal. And sometimes what I hear is like, well, I don't know if that partner's, I don't know if they're going to make it. You know, I think the healing will have outgrown the relationship. And I don't think that that needs to be. I think that if we support the other person in the system, that we can absolutely help them to evolve together. But without support, yeah, it is more likely that it's going to fall apart, break up for sure. So I think there's a risk there that, you know, if we don't take a systemic approach to healing, that we might actually be increasing the divorce rate especially when we're looking at people who are married and doing psychedelics and only one of them is doing it. Well, and this ties back into what we've been talking about the whole time. It's <laughs> about it's not about individual healing, it's about these relationships and these connections and it's about yeah. supporting people and supporting each other and supporting people to have more communication and let's be scientific, more love. <laughs> love it. <laughs> So Adele, we've we've put a lot of different resources. We've talked about a lot of resources on the on the show today. All of that will be in the show notes. Where can people follow you? Follow your work. We'll have your website in the show notes as well. But um, is there anything that you'd suggest people following in terms of I social mean, media or newsletters I'm or not, anything? I'm not really a social media person. I honestly, <clears throat> I like a personal Facebook page and Twitter, but I don't. I'm not really that active. I do have a newsletter. It's primarily focused on emotion-focused memory therapy. People can join that newsletter on the website that we've already mentioned, the mentalhealthfoundations.ca. 
I think it's also available on my personal website, drdalafrance.com. But yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess that's it. I'm not, I'm not really that out there in social media and I'm not really sure I'm ever going to be. Well, I, you are active on Twitter, I know, because that's where I saw the MDMA yes. study published yesterday. Yes. So for those listening who are very eager to know about Dr. Adele's work moving forward, there will be ways Perfect. to find out. All in the show notes. Thank you so much for the conversation today. I've learned a lot. There are, as I mentioned before we recorded, there are people in my life who I'm interested in supporting. Yeah. And this has given me more understanding, a deeper understanding. And I think for many of our listeners too. So really appreciate your time. And and just, I love the work you're doing. And I love, I love the love thing. What a great way of seeing research and medicine. I'm totally in alignment with that. So I really appreciate you and, and everything you're doing. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity. It was fun. Thank you for joining us on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please join the Psychedelic Therapy Facebook group to talk about it. You can also share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes so more people can discover the show. The Psychedelic Therapy Podcast is presented by Maya, a platform designed to help psychedelic therapists manage and measure client journeys. You can head to mayahealth.com to learn more. The show is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.